Colossians chapter 2, we'll pick up with where we left off. Uh, we covered verses uh, 1 through 10. I'm going to be reading verses 11 uh, through 15, just 11 through 15. Starting with verse 11, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we can put one in your hands. Um, but if you have your Bibles, chapter 2, starting with verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also, and which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the uh, handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, and made them and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that Jesus, you've done what we could never do. You lived the life we could never live. You came and taught what we could never teach. You were perfect. You were holy. You were sanctified. You were set apart. You suffered for us. You went to the cross and you gave your life a ransom for our, for our sins. Thank you for taking everything on you. We ask that you would even now, Lord, clear our minds from this day, fill us with your spirit, anoint us, Lord, to hear from you. Lord, we pray that you would speak by your spirit. You would quiet anything that would distract us from hearing from you. Fill us afresh and anew tonight with your wisdom, with your word, with your cleansing and your power. Thank you for this time in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, here in chapter 2, uh, if you are with us uh, a couple of weeks ago, I wasn't here last uh, Wednesday. Scott did a great job. I got a chance to watch that as I was riding down the highway, as I mentioned on Sunday. But Paul transitions in verses 1 through 10. He transitions from his love for the Colossians and his desire to see them walk in Christ. That's a good desire, isn't it? Don't you love the body of Christ? Don't you love your own kids? Don't you want to see your family walk in truth? John said he had no greater joy than to see his children walk in truth. That's a big desire of mine, that I could truly say that the greatest joy in my life is that my wife, my kids, and my brothers and sisters in Christ would walk in the Lord. Can you imagine how, I'm digressing for just a second, but not really digressing. This is going back to last time for just a bit of a review. Can you imagine how much joy we would have if that's the kind of things that our joy was dependent on instead of, I had this new, if this went perfect, if I only had this, if this only went my way. Instead, we were thinking, greatest joy is that the people that I know, and you say, well, this could be problematic because I've got a bunch of people in my family who don't follow the Lord. How am I going to have any joy then? You still have the body of Christ. You still have somebody you can point to and say, they're walking in the Lord. If you only had one. Imagine being... Noah, he couldn't look that far. Man, I would like to see the whole church. The, the church was the little tiny family. 
We're not even sure if after the flood, even if the whole family was walking in the Lord, if you kind of take a look at what some of the things that took place after. But Paul, that was his desire. In verses 1 through 10, just by way of review, his deep desire, remember he hadn't even met most of the Colossians. He had maybe met a few, but we don't know uh, how many. Uh, but his great desire was to see them walk in Christ. That would bring him joy. That would bring the Apostle John and other apostles joy. And he transitions now to reminding them that their ability, it's one thing that you know, we know what God wants us to do, but the ability to actually do it, the ability to actually walk in the Lord, to grow in the Lord, is strictly based on what Christ has already done for us. Isn't that good to know? It's strictly based on what Christ has already done for us. Now, we still get a response. We still, God commands a response, but it's strictly based on what Christ has done for them 2,000 years ago and us today. In other words, everything Christ did allows us to do anything at all for him. Everything he did allows us to do anything, whether it be small, whether it be big, if you've ever done anything valuable for the Lord, it's because God empowered you to do it. Otherwise, you and I wouldn't produce anything. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And nothing means nothing. I have to remind myself of this a lot. The longer I'm saved, it, it's easier for me to see, Lord, I really, I really need your help. I need your help with the smallest of things. How do I lead in our own home? How do I lead in the church? How do we make this next step? I was watching Joe Foch, uh, and, and just, you know, Joe's been saved all these years. He's in his 60s now, and, and, and he's talking about the same thing. Lord, I need, I need you to have uh, three different directions. Show me which one to walk through, and then burn the other two bridges. That's us. It, it's all the Lord has to be the one to direct us to guide us, to lead us. But Jesus has done all the work to allow us to be useful in his hand. You ever, you ever have a tool that you think is going to be useful and you realize that it's not? It's broken. It's missing a part. It's great to have a great drill and you don't have the right bit. All the power, right? But God, he fits every little thing that's actually needed for the job and he's done all the work. The pre-work, the foundation has been laid. That's why he... Uh, laid. He, that's why he's the chief cornerstone. And he builds on everything else. And then we come along, we accept him, and he says, now I'll build your life on me. And that's what we're looking at here tonight. What Jesus has done, if you're taking notes, uh, he took it all. Move this forward. And the first thing we want to look at is starting in verse 11. In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, God had given the requirement of circumcision to Abraham in Genesis 17. Genesis chapter 17, the first time we see it mentioned, hundreds of years before the law. Abraham was given, God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to circumcise your son. Okay? Now, it had, we believe it had been around as a practice even before that, in Semitic parts of the world, uh, that uh, crescent area of the world, the, the Middle East, if you will. But it wasn't constant around the world. There was many 
societies that did not circumcise. But God said, you will. Gave that to Abraham uh, hundreds of years even before the law. Then the requirement of circumcision was reiterated when the law was given to Moses. And we see that uh, in various places. One of them, Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3. But by the time the apostle Paul comes on the scene, by the time he was born, there had been more than 2,000 years since the original command of circumcision that had been given. And circumcision by this point was deeply ingrained in the life and the practice and the identity and the vernacular of the Jewish people. So if you do any study, circumcision was synonymous. By the time of the Roman Empire, it was synonymous with being Jewish because many societies had stopped it altogether because it wasn't common in the Greco-Roman society at all. So that became pervasive, and the only kind of bastion of circumcision left was basically the Jewish people and Jewish Christians. Now, so Paul, he's describing a procedure that was very common to the Jewish community. They're very familiar with it. One, like, again, that the, the Gentiles in the Roman world would have known as well because, again, that it was considered a very Jewish thing or maybe Christians that were Jewish. And the initial command given to Abraham... And then to Moses, right? So the original was given to Abraham, then to Moses. The circumcision of every baby boy was to take place on what day? The eighth day. Some of you probably, we've got some Jewish people in the family, uh, in the family here. Uh, you might be familiar with this. It's a big ceremony. Everybody gathers. Uh, I, I can't get into this big ceremony thing. But anyway, I, I know that people do, and uh, it's a big deal. But all of God's reasons, we don't know. We don't know all the reasons why God has this practice, why it was the eighth. Originally, we didn't know why it was the eighth day. We still don't know all the reasons. But we do now know that the eighth day was perfect from a medical perspective. Did you know, did you know that? You ever heard that? See, why do I have to get into all this? Well, Paul mentioned circumcision one, two, three, four times in just three verses. And a whole bunch more times. Um, about 50 times in the New Testament it's mentioned, 30-plus times in the Old Testament it's mentioned. So there is something God wants us to understand here. But as far as this eighth day, we now know that from a medical perspective, it was the best possible day for healing and for coagulation, all these things, long before anyone knew this. Whatever God has said in his word is already more than enough for us to simply believe it. Do you agree with that statement? If God said it, you don't need any supporting evidence, you don't need scientific evidence, you don't need any medical evidence. If God said it, it's already true. We have enough to simply believe. But due to his grace, and I also believe due to him knowing our inclination to unbelief, we're more inclined to unbelief than we are to believe. One of the ways that God further validates the spiritual truths in Scripture is with his sovereignty over science. You know, when you create science, you're sovereign over it, right? You have all the knowledge. We see similar validations and confirmations in history, don't we? You study history, you see prophecy. Wow, fulfilled, fulfilled, fulfilled. We see it in archaeology. They keep finding things in Israel every time they unearth another layer, another proof. 
we see it most dramatically in changed lives right in this room. Amen? That's the biggest evidence, I think, because it's just in the millions now. S.I. McMillan, medical doctor in his book, None of These Diseases, back, written back in the 80s, Dr. McMillan observes, we should commend the many hundreds of workers who labored at great expense over a number of years to discover that the safest day to perform circumcision is the eighth. Yet, as we congratulate the medical science for this recent finding, we can almost hear the leaves of the Bible rustling. They would like to remind us that 4,000 years ago, when God initiated circumcision with Abraham, Abraham did not pick the eighth day. After many centuries of trial and error and experiments, that, that's not how Abraham arrived at it. Neither he nor any of his company from the ancient city of Ur and the Chaldeans had ever been circumcised. It was a day picked by the Creator. God knew. Now again, why am I pointing these things out? As I've mentioned, circumcision mentioned more than 80 times in the Bible. Some of the reasons we're not really here to look at tonight, there are other things to understand spiritually and parallels. But I wanted you to turn your attention back to our text Back to verse 11 again. In him, in him, you were also circumcised. But the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Here's the thing. If God was right about important little details, like which day, how it would work medically best, such as the ideal situations for something like circumcision, we can be assured that he's right about the important details of our salvation. Amen? He's not going to miss any of the important details, which is far more important. You see, as important as our, as if you were Jewish, as important as the physical circumcision was under the law to the Jewish people, this is not the circumcision Paul's addressing. Did you know that? It was right there in the text. This, Paul's not talking about that circumcision. He's clearly talking about a spiritual procedure, isn't he? That like the physical command is ordained by God, but the physician is Jesus. The physician is Jesus. It's not some rabbi. It's not some doctor at Johnson & Willis or Bon Secours. The physician is Christ. This is not, Paul is not here talking about the circumcision that was under the law. The understanding of the physical underscores the process of the spiritual. The process of the, there is a process of salvation. I mean, God initiates the process. God says, the process is going to be, I'm going to send my son. Right? There had to be a process. God so loved the world that he gave, right? But Jesus had to complete. That's why when he finished, he said it is what? Finished. Everything had to be completed. The process is initiated by God, but the physical, like circumcision, where Paul is drawing the illusion here, the, the, the metaphor, it underscores the process of the spiritual. To be identified as Jewish, circumcision was absolutely required for any man. You couldn't be identified as Jewish if you wanted to be even come in and say, hey, I'd like to become Jewish. Well, then you had a happy little procedure. 
to be identified with Jesus. And even more than that, more than identify with Jesus, what does it say in verse 11? In him. Not just identified with Jesus, in him. It's one thing to be identified with something, but to be in it, well, you're, you're 100% part now. You're not just identified. In him. Rather to be brought into Christ, a spiritual circumcision is required. And you can see that Paul's not writing to just men. This is men and women. Everyone, right? In him, you. This is everyone in the Colossian church. This is everyone in the church of all time. Uh, in other words... Paul is saying, this procedure, this spiritual procedure is required for everyone. And what is it? Look at the rest of verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of what? Sins. Sins. Is there anyone in this room that can remove their own sin? You can't remove your own sin any more than an eight-day-old can circumcise themselves. Right? That's the point. Paul is saying, you can't do this. You can't, at, at, at eight days old, you don't even know you're alive. I mean, not consciously aware of all that stuff. I mean, they feel pain and all that stuff. That's why we hate abortion. But, but, but again, you're not thinking through, hey, I think I, by the way, I'm eight days old. Would someone circumcise me today? You know, that kind of thing. Would someone feed me? Well, they actually do start crying for that. You, you moms know. But you could no more give yourself a procedure of any kind than you could take your own sin away. So this is why Paul said this, this is made without hands. The removal of flesh is a medical procedure. The removal of sin is a spiritual procedure. And the physician is Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can do it. It happens in the unseen realm of our hearts where Christ removes the stain of sin. When people have come forward and gotten saved, I have not ever observed like a pile of sin fly out of the building. I've never been able to visibly watch this take place. And everything. I want to watch the cutting away of sin. How am I? There it goes. There it goes. And we wouldn't even want everyone to see it, right? Especially if it was spelled out, right? It's not made with hands. It's not visible to the eye. But God sees Christ literally come in and kind of, if you will, scoop the sins away. Covered by the blood of Jesus. He removes it. It's removed by his blood. But then it's interesting. The Bible tells us the blood of Christ makes us white. Isn't that an odd thing? Strange. We get little hints of this, by the way. Every time I drink milk, I think about this. Brown cow, green grass, right? What am I missing here? Brown cow, green grass, you know. Uh, but, you know, out comes white milk. You're like, that doesn't make any sense. And the blood of Jesus, similarly, it cleanses us. But it all happens in the unseen realm. We experience that we've been cleansed and purified, and we tell people, and this is where the unsaved world, they're like, How, what do you mean you've been born again? What does that even mean? Even Nicodemus had the same question when Jesus said it to him. He's like, how am I going to get back into mom? He was a, a seasoned, you know, really man, scholarly man, and he really struggled. What in the world are you talking about? 
It's in the unseen realm. The things that Jesus does, the removal of sin, it's mysterious to us, but it's not to God. But it's very important, just like I said. Eight-day-old can't circumcise themselves. No unbeliever can take away their own sin. No one can say, well, I'll just perform my own procedure. I'll take away my own sin. I remember reading uh, you know, a quote from Mayor Bloomberg where he said that, um, you know, he, he talked about getting into heaven. He goes, I, I, I'll be right at the front of the line. He goes, I know I've done more than enough. I'm paraphrasing, but uh, no one's done even close to enough. Jesus is the only one that removes it. And praise God, he does it without hands. His hands were nailed when he did it, if you will. It was the blood dripping down. It was the work of the Holy Spirit that comes in and does this work on a heart that we can't see. But you know what? We can't see when God takes sins away, but I tell you what I can see. I can see when God's taken people's sins away. The after effect, I know some, I know some of you now, and I knew you before you were saved. And I know you're different. I know God cut something away that hasn't been replaced. I know you might st- you struggle like everybody else that you sometimes you kind of w- wobble and waver and you feel like but you've not ever gone back. You're not an 8-day old anymore. You've grown. God's changed you. He removed. Let's take a look at the next. He raised verse 12 buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. Buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him. So Paul goes on here in verse 12. Now, just as the circumcision Paul describes is completed in the spiritual realm, we know that this circumcision he's talking about is not the physical. We know he's talking about a spiritual work. And he's using a, a language that his audience would understand. But just as that was a spiritual work that he's talking about, so are the beautiful truths here in verse 12. Buried with him? Raised with him? Jesus, of course, was buried alone. Were any of you there that day? No. Jesus was buried alone. In that tomb, in that garden, he was the only body ever laid in that tomb. Remember, they had to find a tomb that no one had ever been in. Joseph and Arimathea, all the, they weren't buried in there. Jesus was buried alone. He rose out of the grave alone, by himself alone, and was even, as you recall, he was walking in the garden before a single disciple was even aware he was awake and alive again. Or even that they believed he could be raised. They, he had no idea. He rose before the sun. He's walking around and peek in there. He's already out. All this was done Jesus did this by himself. You weren't there. I wasn't there. Nobody was there except for him. It was him, the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Paul wasn't there. Paul wasn't even a believer at that time. Jesus defeated death in the tomb alone by himself because no one else could do it but him. He alone has conquered death. He did the same with sin with the shedding of his blood on the cross. And yet Paul writes, now Jesus is the one that took care of sin. He was the one that did it with his body on the cross. And yet Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul wasn't on the cross with Jesus. 
And neither were we, right? None of us were on the cross with him. Paul says, I was crucified with him. But here's the point. There's not what Paul is saying, both in Galatians and here, there's not a physical act that we're to do or ever could do to become part of his death, part of his burial, part of the resurrection of Jesus. There's not an act. You could say, well, if I, if I built a house for someone, if I did this, if I gave money, if I uh, you know, did all these ceremonial things. But there is a spiritual response, isn't there? That we must have, and it's right in the middle of verse 12. I don't know if you saw it. It's, there is something there that we are to respond with. It's not a physical act. Through faith. There it is. Faith. Faith. Have you ever bought a piece of faith? Have you ever handed someone a piece? Hey, I'd like to cut you off a slice of faith. No. Can't buy faith off the rack. You can't do an act that earns faith. You see, faith isn't something you can touch or taste or see or smell or hear. It's a spiritual thing, isn't it, right? You can't grab faith in that, in that way. That's why it bothers some people about faith, doesn't it? They want something they can pick up. They, they want little, little, remember Israel had to turn away and get rid of the little idols. People like something they can hold, Right? Shave it this way. This, this is my faith right here. It's shaped like my God. It might be the shape of your car. It might be the career. It might be something. But faith, you can't see it. You can't touch it. It's the response or the lack thereof of our spirit responding to the spirit of God. If we have faith and we've responded within a yet, with a yes and an agreement with God, that's an exercise of faith. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Believe God. It wasn't all those dusty miles he walked. It was he believed God. And as Christ extends his nail-pierced hands, if we put our full faith and trust in Christ, we very simply and humbly, I've never seen someone genuinely say that wasn't humbled. God gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud. That's the point of salvation is always a point of humility. Jesus died a humble death. We actually come to him humble for salvation. Right? There's no, there's no prideful entrance into the narrow gate. So when we simply and humbly call upon his mercy... And the grace of his shed blood, that's when we've exercised faith. That's when we become, by the Holy Spirit, something that no one can see. It's in the unseen realm. Nicodemus, remember? John chapter 3, struggle with. What are you talking about? In the unseen realm, we become part of the resurrection. Isn't that cool? We become part of the death, burial, and resurrection. We're going to do a baptism this Sunday. That whole picture is actually a... We're, we're, people are literally going to get wet here, folks, on Sunday. That's 
that's something we can actually, we can see they go down dry, we can see them come up wet. But in the spiritual realm, no one can see the conversion except for God. We're written, it's on the tablets of our heart. We're actually given a name that no one knows. Our name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Did you know those places are real, but only God can see them? And Paul is saying here, you can be confident, even though you weren't there at the cross, you've been crucified with Christ. Even though you were not in the tomb, you've been buried with him in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. He says that. He says, raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. It's by the work of God. But we've got an even, uh, I'll get to this other verse in just a second that even makes this even more clear. If you're here tonight and you've been saved by Jesus' amazing grace, you took the tiniest measure, the tiniest measure of faith that God, by the way, gave you and me. The first tiny measure of faith we all received from God. Do you believe that? We did not manufacture the first tiny seed of faith. He's given light to every man, book of John. But that tiniest measure of faith that God is willing to give to everyone, he's willing to give every single person on earth the tiniest measure of faith just to believe, just to take that first step. But you took that grace, if you're saved here, you took that grace-given little measure of faith, and then you took that first step towards Jesus, didn't you? Now, he'd already taken a million steps towards us, or more, whatever. But when we took that step and we cried out for mercy, we also died to the old nature. That's what it means to be buried with him. We died to the old nature. We were willing to say bye-bye to the old life. I, ne- I remember when I walked forward, Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, 1995, sitting there in that, sitting there in that chair, my heart pounding out of my chest. What are people going to think if I go forward? And the thing that rotated in my mind I kind of saw my entire life's kind of what I was about kind of speed reel through in a matter of milliseconds, and I had to determine, did I want that or whatever it was that Jesus was offering? I didn't fully understand it, but that was the mustard seed to say, okay, I'm going to go anyway. And that's, that's what God said. He said, you heard the call that you were thirsty enough that you wanted to drink from the living water. And when you took that step, and I took that step, we cried out for mercy. We died to the old nature. I even remember saying as I'm walking forward, I remember in my mind, if I I lose all of my buddies, I guess that's what it meant to be. Or something, I don't know how how he's wording it in my head, but I was like, if I lose them, I lose them. By the way, if you gain God, it's worth losing everything else, isn't it? And then we were brought into his resurrection by the Spirit of God. I, I wasn't there when Jesus rose out of the tomb, but the Scriptures say we kind of were. Romans 8, 11. Turn there with me. Turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 11. So you say, well, are, are you sure we were part of the resurrection? Well, you weren't there then, but God's not bound by time. And in the spirit realm, we're put into his resurrection. Not the day of the resurrection. It's not that it's that Jesus is Lord of the resurrection. Does that make sense? 
All resurrection is him. He is, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. So when you're part of the resurrection, it's more succinctly put that you're part of Jesus. But he is the resurrection. He's the life. He's the way. He's the truth. So all of those things. That's why Paul starts to say in verse 11, in him, in him, in him makes, all those words make sense because he is the umbrella of them all. But in Romans 8, 11, look what it says. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through, whom, through his spirit who dwells in you. It's a, it was a work of the spirit. So that act of faith activates the indwelling of the spirit. If the spirit of him, the spirit of who? The spirit of Jesus Christ himself. The spirit of Christ dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. Now, if you kind of understand what we just read in Colossians, Colossians 8.12, and you kind of take that and marry it up with what Paul writes in Romans 8.11, versus Colossians 2.12, uh, Colossians 2, versus Romans 8.11. Kind of take those two together. Did you catch the twofold promise? There's a twofold promise here. Let me set it up. Jesus secured our salvation with a physical, literal suffering on a literal cross. We all agree with that? He secured our, his salvation was not in just a spiritual realm. He literally had to become all man while he was all God. So the actual purchase of our salvation was done on a literal cross, not that big, but made of wood. That part was literal physical, blood, horrific, you wouldn't have wanted to see it, nor would I. But, and then, he goes into a literal tomb, and his resurrection is literal. Stone rolls away. He literally walks out. All of that was physical. Now, it was supernatural with the resurrection. I would argue that it was supernatural for the Son of God to not incinerate the world as well, to stay on the cross. It was all supernatural. But it was all literal, and it was all visible to anybody who saw. They said, no, no, that was as real as the terra firma we're standing on. But he also won our salvation in the spiritual realm, didn't he? There was a literal cross. There was a literal suffering. There was a literal resurrection. But he also won our salvation in the spirit realm. He sets the soul free via the physical work on the cross. But in the spiritual realm, he sends forth the Holy Spirit. And he also, by his blood, takes away the sin. And all of that is in the spiritual realm. It's not visible. I've never seen it happen to you. You've never seen, we've only seen the after effects of now we're, we kind of glow with salvation, if you will. But the work of the Spirit is now resident and Visible. That's why your friends from high school at the high school reunion, your 40th reunion, you're, like, you're not the same person I remember. No, I'm not. What happened? God came in, pulled some stuff out, put some new stuff in, and this is what you got. And I'm more handsome now than I was then. But other, other than that, you know, those are secondary. The Spirit of God, once we've been surrendered, 
We have the Holy Spirit living in us, Romans 8, 11 there. The Holy Spirit is living in you right now. You're a mini temple. You're a mini tabernacle now. You have the Holy Spirit living in you, but that was done by the physical work of Jesus and the spiritual work of Jesus. Both had to be completed. He had to come physically through Mary all the way through his life. All The physical part had to be completed. That's the 100% man part. But the God part, the spirit part had to be completed. And now the spirit of God the Father lives in us. But there's something else in the twofold promise. The first, the twofold promise is this. One, Paul's saying via what's taking place here in Colossians and what's in Romans and other places too. I'm just using a small portion because of our time tonight. But Paul is saying, one, you get the Holy Spirit right now. Now. I can, I can do the things God's called me to do, which I could never do if I didn't have the help of the Holy Spirit. I couldn't preach. I couldn't do anything if it wasn't for the help of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, you get the Holy Spirit now, not in the future, now. The second you get saved, you get the Holy Spirit. Now, we want to be immersed. We want the overflow work of the Spirit in our life, don't we? But we get the Holy Spirit immediately. That's what Paul's saying. If you're saved, you have the Spirit of God living in you. But that's not where it ends. The rest of Romans 8.11 says, He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. Your mortal bodies are getting something in the future. Won't that be great? Because Jesus is not... In the, he's not hanging out in the garden anymore. He's seated on his throne. He's made earth. He has a glorified body. Remember, he's just kind of showing up where the apostles were. He ascended up into heaven. He has a glorified body. And so Paul is saying the twofold promise is you get the Holy Spirit now, but you're going to get the same resurrected body as Jesus in the future. Isn't that great? Some of you should really be happy. This, this body's wearing out. The spirit's the same. Matter of fact, the spirit should become sweeter in your life over time. But sad to say, all bodies are going to wear out. I was uh, throwing the football with my girls the other day, uh, and, I, and, and I, at the other end of the field was three guys in their 20s. And I'm like, oh, man. There's certain things I know if I do now, I'm not going to be standing up here because I'm going to have a blown out knee or something. I just know it. So I'm now wiser now. I don't care. I don't, doesn't matter. I don't have anything to prove anymore. You know, when you're young, you have a lot to prove. I'm faster than you. I, I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you, all this stuff. The older you get, the Holy Spirit says, you don't need any of that stuff anymore. When we get to heaven, all that stuff's going to be pretty evened out. The twofold promise, spirit now, which helps us to live day by day. And, but in the future... We're going to get a resurrected body. But we're already part of the resurrection. Amen? We're already part of it. Jesus is alive forevermore spiritually. But he has that eternal physical body as well. He said, touch. Does a spirit have skin like this that you can touch? Paul's saying that this is coming. We have the spirit now, but the second part of the promise remains. Last thing we'll take a look at. We'll come to a close here. He relieved. He relieved. Look at verses uh, 13, 14, 15. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcised, uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgive you all of your trespasses, having wiped out the requirement, uh, wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. 
having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them in it. Jesus not only took our sins and guilt, but he took any and all requirements upon himself. That's good to know, isn't it? He fulfilled the law we could never fulfill. Can you imagine trying to keep all the law? Huh. He was sinless. He was perfect. He was holy. And his death and resurrection abolished anything that was held against us if we trust in him. That's the big if, right? If we trust in him. I don't have to measure up, but I do have to receive by faith that he's already covered everything. He's already fulfilled everything. Years ago, it's always stuck with me. I, I mentioned every now and then. Um, but I remember when I was newly saved here in Chuck Swindoll say, some of the most godly people he's ever met are those that truly understand grace. And I knew even then exactly what he meant by that. Yeah, I was even newly saved. And immediately, you know, the spirit just kind of, I knew what he meant by that. I knew, and, and you, even though I knew what he meant by that, I didn't walk like that for years. I still was like too harsh on certain things. I would be, you, we all have our pet legalism areas where we're really good at this spiritually and we think no one else is. That I had some of those areas. And the longer I'm saved, I find I wasn't even good at those. So I've had to abandon those pet legalism areas. You ever have them? I can look back and know I had them. And, and even though I understand what Chuck Swindoll was saying, the Holy Spirit was like, you, you really don't. You'll get it in about 10 years. But I, at some level, I did understand it, and I thought, that's really cool, because those people that understand grace are not trying to perform for God. They're trying to just walk with God. And that's what he's saying. He says, the handwriting requirements, you don't have to perform for God anymore. You get to walk with God in the cool of the life, if you will. We'll get into this more in verses 16 and 23 in the uh, the next study, but the ceremonial aspects of the law are no longer an issue for us. You read the whole Torah. Read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Read the first five books. Read everything in there, and you'll see this is great for many reasons, that, that not every little thing in there. Do you like shellfish? Some of you like lobster? You can enjoy it. There's a time in history where you couldn't have you're under the law. I can take it or leave it, but anyway, there's, there's things there that, that there's many other reasons that I won't get into tonight uh, that truly, uh, we ought to talk about circumcision, there's a whole bunch of other reasons why you would enjoy it too. If I, if I went into the details, and the Bible is very detailed about things, right? Sometimes you think, why is all this in here? And especially when you get to preach it. But nevertheless, we don't need a physical temple anymore, do we? No. The veil was torn, wasn't it? We don't need the sacrifices I have never sacrificed a lamb. We don't need that. I'm thankful for that. The lamb was sacrificed in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. That means you and I don't have to go get another lamb. Circumcision is no longer required. It's good. There's people around the world that are never going to be circumcised, but can definitely be saved in the spiritual side. Amen? 1 Corinthians 7.19, Bible makes it crystal clear. Paul writes, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God, that is what matters. Well, that would have drove some you know, early 
church Jewish people crazy because they're well, circumcision was a commandment. Paul's like, I know it was, but that was under the law. Now it doesn't matter for the Gentiles. They don't have to be. To be brought into Christ is without hands. To be brought into the Jewish realm was with hands. That was a physical. But Paul said, no, no, not, not in the spiritual. This is without hands. This is the work of the Spirit. This is the mystery of the Holy Spirit and the blood-bought work of God by faith. Jesus took all the binding laws and he instead gave us grace. He gave us the grace to walk in the very Holy Spirit that he's placed inside of us. We need grace. Even though we have the Holy Spirit, we still need grace to walk in harmony with the Holy Spirit. Do you agree with that? Even though we have the Holy Spirit, we need grace to walk in harmony with the Spirit. longer I'm saved, I understand more and more. Grace, grace, grace. Yes, we have his commands to obey, but the grace he's given is the only way we could or even would obey. Still it comes down to, down to his grace. And by his grace, I believe those of us who are still holding on to a mustard seed of faith will walk faithfully. By grace. Otherwise, we would all throw in the towel. Because we're, we don't have enough stick-to-itiveness in us but the Holy Spirit and grace does. W.E., oh, I forgot to read his last name. Webb, I think. Um, the sinner, apart from grace, is unable to be willing and unwilling to be able. I think it's W.E. Webb. The sinner, apart from grace, is unable to be willing and unwilling to be able. That's true. It's all what Christ has done for us, what he's taken on our behalf. Well after salvation, he continues to make us willing, doesn't he? Well after salvation. I don't care how long you've been saved. You need the Holy Spirit to make you willing to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Oh, I don't need to perform for you. I can just walk with you. But Christ, he's, he's relieved us from that pressure to perform, and instead he's given us the blessing of what Jesus called abiding. Don't you see the difference between abiding and performing? Performing is trying to, you know, uh, do all these... Um, Throw, it, throw in another uh, juggling act. Throw in the chainsaw now. You know, all that kind of stuff, right? Abiding is just get planted and let God flow through us. Big, big difference. The religions of the world are about performing. Jesus is about abiding. He did all the work. He did all the things that were necessary. Jesus not only removed all the sentence of guilt and death that was previously upon us, he not only took away the previous requirements, he not only gave us the grace now to serve him with, with joy and a new taste for the things of the Lord, but he permanently defeated our enemies. That's good to know, too. That's the last thing we want to look at here. And um, he says, having disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing, I'm, not, I'm having trouble with that word tonight, over them in it. Luke 10, 19, I told you I've been meditating on this passage for several weeks, and I love it. Behold, Jesus said, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. Jesus has given us victory over the evil demonic realm. Sometimes I'm, I, 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 sometimes I'm afraid when I'm preaching. I'm like, man, if I read these verses, I'm going to incur a lot of wrath from the dark side. But Jesus already said, I've taken care of all that. He's disarmed the principalities and powers. I, I have to just read what the Word says. 
Paul says it, and he writes to the Romans in Romans 16, 20, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Well, Paul was already incurring a lot of wrath from the enemy, wasn't he? But he was convinced that no matter what, and of course he had joy and all that, he was able to trample and trample and trample and trample over the spiritual realm of serpents and scorpions. And said, Paul's like, I have finished the course, right? I fought the good fight. He said, nothing's going to stop me from finishing this course. I'll get a few bumps and bruises along the way. The enemy truly wants to intimidate us. Did you know that? The enemy truly wants to intimidate us. He wants us to believe that you've got to perform, that Satan's going to knock you down. Remember we talked about Nehemiah uh, chapter 4. Ten times they were told you're going to be attacked. Remember, ten times you're going to be attacked from every side. I don't even know why. Sometimes I think, Lord, why would you let them hear that ten times? But then I'm like, why have you let me hear certain things ten times or twenty times or a hundred times? The enemy truly wants to intimidate us, but Paul reminds us that Jesus not only relieved us of a life we could never live and keep, but he's removed the power of the enemy that the enemy would otherwise have over us if Jesus didn't disarm the enemy. It says he disarmed. Disarmed them. It's interesting that the, in the, the spirit world um, is invisible, but the cross, the spirit world, everything that happened that Jesus could see in the spirit world, we can't see physically, but if you were alive 2,000 years ago, yes, you could see the cross, you could see, uh, you know, you could see the trial, you could see the soldiers, all of that, and... We actually have a physical thing we hold right here, don't we? We have literal words that we can look. I can see this part of the five senses. I can see the words. So we have that. So we're holding a physical, historical, and literal triumph in our hands right here, the Word of God. You're holding something that literally is a testament to the demonic unseen world, the Bible. Every time you read it, you're disarming. Every time you keep opening it up, you're disarming. Every time you believe on it, you're disarming. Jesus has already done the disarming, but you and I are just putting on more armor that he's already done the work. They, the demonic world, they... They might have loved when Jesus was crucified, but at the same time, they knew they were defeated there. And Jesus said, look, it, they've already been defeated. They, they know their time is short. Because of grace and his plan for us, Jesus wants our life to be the same witness that his life was to the unseen world as well as to the people around us, right? Your spouse, your kids, your neighbors, your coworkers. He wants you to be a witness there, but he also wants your life to be a witness to the unseen world. We know this is true. Remember the, the demons uh, beat up a couple of dudes in Acts? And they said, Paul, we know. We don't know who you are, though, right? They were well aware of the life Paul was living. He, he was radiating the victorious life, but they're like, you're a fraud. So those guys got the tar beat out of them. The unseen world is watching. But these things are written for what? 
All these verses we looked at tonight, they're written for our confidence. Confidence. They're written for our confidence because of Christ, we're on the winning team. Amen? He's done all the work. It's all of him. Let's be humble. Let's be grateful. Let's be obedient. And let's be courageous. Amen? Because Jesus has provided everything we need to flourish for his name's sake and our growth. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again tonight that it's all been done in you. Everything we need, not only, Lord, have you in the spiritual realm circumcised and taken away our sin, but, Lord, you have brought us into your death, your burial, and your resurrection. We're thankful that we already have the down payment of salvation and the presence of your Holy Spirit, but, we're, Lord, we look forward to the full completion when we see you face to face and glorified immortal bodies as you have today. And Lord, we thank you that you've defeated our enemies. In this room, Lord, I pray right now that you would deliver my brothers and sisters, myself, each of us, from attacks the enemy has been bringing there. Lord, there's been a lot of them in this church. And I just pray, Lord, even now, you would cut the strings of anything that the enemy would hold over our heads in the way of intimidation or lies or reasons to perform for you or uh, just pride or legalism or uh, an unuse of grace, a license to sin, any of these things, and Lord, just fears and anxieties and depression and all the things the enemy would use to bring us back into a place of bondage. Lord, we just pray right now that you reveal to us, Lord, this confidence that you give, that you have done everything. We now need to simply just abide, trust, and obey and leave the results to you. And Lord, we believe that we will have the same joy that Paul and John spoke about, that we'll have a heart for the spiritual realm where you and your will is flowing in our life. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Lord, bless and use us as we go out from this place. In your name we pray. Amen.